Well, uh, I got the news yesterday. I was up in San Luis Obispo seeking clean air, and I found out that um, I found out that we have at Westmont. We were told that we have to make alternative arrangements for our finals, and um, and there were a bunch of students there actually from Westmont up in San Luis Obispo studying, and. Uh, and I saw them kind of vigorously studying for their finals. Not really. When a bunch of students go to a coffee shop together to study for their finals, not a lot of studying goes on. So students, I just want you to know if you're here, you cannot count that as study time. It does not count. Okay? So don't tell me two hours. It wasn't two hours. Um, so uh, so I, I flashed back, though, to my days of studying, and I used to drill myself with note cards. As a history major, I would walk around campus at night because I have ADHD, and I have to, like, move to remember things. So I'm just doing flashcards, names, dates, people, places, treaties, all around. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Right? I say repetition is the key to learning. Cambridge University actually did this study uh, that concluded that if you hear a word 160 times within 15 minutes, you'll remember that word. It's why when you first meet someone, it's good to say their name over and over again, Dan. It's nice to meet you, Dan. Dan, I was just thinking about this, Dan. And you keep saying their name, Dan, over and over again, Dan. And you sound kind of annoying, but you'll make up for it the next time you see them because you will remember their name. Repetition is crucial to learning. Whether you're doing um, scales on the piano or uh, basketball drills, repetition is, is key. Here we have a repeated story, a repeated miracle. Back in chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people uh, with a handful of loaves and fishes. And here, Jesus feeds a crowd in chapter 8 of 4,000 people. And it's worth asking, why does Mark repeat the same miracle, the same type of miracle, twice? I mean, John, another author in the New Testament, said that if all the books in all the world, uh, all the books in all the world at the time that he was written couldn't writing could not contain all the miracles that Jesus did. So Jesus did tons of miracles that aren't in the Bible. And yet, you think, okay, well, let's use a variety. Why do something that's so similar? Because Jesus often did the same type of miracle. Why do something twice that's so similar? I think the answer is, is because we often don't get it on the first try. Like the disciples didn't get it on the first try, or the second try, or the third try, the fourth try, the 4,000th try. We need it over and over and over and over again. In verse 21, Jesus concludes with this very penetrating question. Do you not yet understand? What was it that the disciples missed? What was it that they failed to understand that what might we fail to understand? What might we miss? Well, to understand that, I want to look at the miracle and the warning. First, the miracle. Let me set the scene for us. Uh, there's a great crowd of people, and they have followed Jesus out into the middle of nowhere. They're in a, a Gentile territory, 
And Jesus has been preaching for three days, three days, and they have gone without food, verse 2 tells us. And this draws out something in Jesus. Compassion. Look in verse 2. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. Compassion drives Jesus. He feels this deep sense of empathy for the crowd. Look in verse 3 how he puts himself in their shoes. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And that's just amazing to me. He's thinking about what it will be like for them when they go home. That they might faint. Empathy. Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Empathy is entering into their pain, feeling their pain as they would feel it, seeing the world as they would see it. In Jesus, he has a compassion on this crowd, and it's driven by empathy. And empathy brings intimacy, closeness. And what kills closeness is at least you, which I would have expected him to say. I mean, he has actually known hunger. He has known uh, tiredness, and he could have said, well, at least you haven't been out here 40 days. He could have said, well, you came from a long way, but I came from heaven. At least you didn't have to come from heaven. Uh, I know what it was like to be in a sinless, perfect relationship with my father. At least you didn't lose that. I mean, at least you. You've probably had that experience before where you explain your pain to someone and they try to undermine or lighten that pain by putting it in perspective and maybe trying to do it helpfully, but they say, at least you. But the problem with at least you is at least you always kills closeness. Because it says that that person can't relate. But Jesus, he doesn't say at least you. And that's amazing to me that the one who went without food for 40 days has compassion on those who went without food for three days. That the one who came from heaven itself has compassion on those who have traveled a long way from home. And he has compassion on us as well. You see, Jesus, he enters in. He enters into the pain of our world, to the suffering of our world. He knows it and he takes it to its full. And he takes it beyond any, what any of us will ever experience. He takes it beyond what any of us have ever experienced, and not so he can say, at least you, but so he can say, I feel your pain, and I'm with you. And it's that empathy, that comfort, that care, that compassion that drives him to save them, to work on their behalf, and to do this miracle. The miracle is almost exactly like the one that comes before it. Jesus asks his disciples, how many uh, loaves do you have and fish? They respond, Jesus takes them, and then he tells them to disperse them amongst the crowds. The crowds eat, and they are satisfied, and they take leftovers at the end. It, It almost is just like the one that comes before, but there are a few key differences, and and the tell is in the differences. Have you ever watched one of those spy shows where uh, someone figured out 
that someone was lying or that they were a spy. And afterwards, afterwards, they, someone says to the person who figured it out, like, how'd you know? And they're like, well, they mentioned that they were surfing in the summer in Santa Barbara. And everyone knows who's from Santa Barbara that there are no waves in the summer. You know? It, it's the tell. It's the small thing. Everything else looks the same, but it's that small thing. Well, I think the key here is in the differences. Uh, in the first feeding, there were five loaves, but here there are seven loaves. In the first feeding, when they pick up the baskets, there are 12 baskets left over, 12, one for each disciple, just enough, a perfect amount. But here, there are seven baskets. And there's one other difference between these baskets. In the first one, the baskets were like brown bag lunches, right? Just enough for a person. But here, the baskets are big enough, like a laundry hamper. They're big enough to put Paul in and lower him down a window. So we're talking about very different type of baskets. And there's one other difference, and that is the region. The first time Jesus does the miracle, he does it in a Jewish setting. Jewish people. And here we are in a Gentile region with Gentile people, non-Jews. And what all these facts, I think, come together to tell us is this, that God's grace is not just for some people, it is for all people. That God's grace is not just for Jews, it is for Gentiles. That God's grace isn't just, um, doesn't just meet the necessity for Jews, but there's an abundance, a surplus, enough for the whole world. It, you cannot plumb the depths of God's love, and you cannot outrun His grace. You see, God's grace does not run on an economy of scarcity. It doesn't have limits. Some of you are familiar with a doctrine called limited atonement. That is a very unfortunate term because it can make some people think that it limits the value of the atonement. The doctrine of limited atonement, if you know what I'm talking about, is actually about the design of the atonement. What it's meant to accomplish is not about its value. Its value is infinite. Jesus' grace is infinite. And it is enough for the whole world. For everyone, everywhere. That's what Mark is trying to tell us. When... Pam and I moved to do graduate school over in England. We decided that we would put everything on a credit card to save up miles so that we could go back and forth. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Like our tuition, my tuition was on a credit card. My, our um, our uh, rent was on a credit card. We were doing everything on a credit card. Well, because... Before then, I hadn't needed a lot of money or used a credit card very much. Uh, What I found out when I got there is that I quickly hit my limit doing that. So I'd run my credit card, and all of a sudden, they're like, you can't, no more. And I'm stuck in England and freaking out. It's like, how do we get groceries? How do we do this? We don't know. Um, And and it was like, uh, we we were stalled. 
what do we do? And so I had to call the credit card company, and I got them to raise my limit, and, and it was fine. Some of us think that God's grace works like that, that there's some kind of limit, a max, a quota, and maybe you feel like you have hit it because you've committed that sin one too many times. Because the pattern of addiction keeps coming back over and over again. And you think, has it run out? Have I reached my limit? There is an abundance of God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. God's grace goes deeper than each and every one of your sins. And you cannot plumb its depth. There is grace enough for you, an abundance of grace for you. Some of you think, I I don't know. Maybe God's grace is for, well, it's for people who sin, but I'm a sinner. It's for people who fail, but I'm a failure. God's grace is for all. It's for you and it's for all. And that's one of the things that would have shocked people here that Jesus, the Messiah, was, mentoring, uh, was ministering to Gentiles and inviting them to his table. Who would it be shocking for you to gather around this table with? For some of you, it's someone like Harvey Weinstein. For others of you, it's our current or former president. For others of us, we would be shocked to the multi-millionaires, even billionaires, uh, who live in the hills of Montecito or in Hope Ranch coming to this table. We don't think there's any way to reach them with the gospel. For others of us, we think, oh no, it's, it's about, um, we would be shocked to be around this table with, uh, with working class uh, immigrants who don't speak our language. And we think, how can the gospel get to them? For others of us, it is those who are deeply distressed mentally. For others of us, it is one of our college professors who is a dogged atheist. And we would be so shocked to see him around this table. For others of us, it is those who run in gangs, and for maybe others of us still, it's those people within our own families. And we think they're outside the bounds. Grace can't reach them. No, there's an abundance of grace for you, for me, for all. And God's grace reaches out So here's the question. Are you working with an economy of scarcity or an economy of abundance as it relates to God's grace? Well, here are two signs that you may be working on an economy of scarcity. Envy and jealousy. In their book, uh, The Cry of the Soul, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman say that envy comes from wanting to gain what we do not have, and jealousy comes from wanting to keep what we angrily fear we might lose. Envy and jealousy. 
Envy, wanting to get what we do not have. Envy looks like feeling like when someone else has a win, when they have a promotion, when they get into a relationship, when they have recognition, their win means our loss. When we see God give them certain gifts, we think that he can't give us certain gifts. When he, we see his love go out to someone else, we think that it doesn't mean love for us, that we're dealing with an all-some game, and if, if they get a slice of the pie, it means we have a slice taken away. Envy. And that means that we're dealing with an economy of scarcity. What about jealousy? Jealousy, wanting to keep what we angrily fear we might lose. In other words, jealousy is a type of hoarding. Do you hoard? Do you hoard your time? Do you think, well, time spent this way with my family, what well, means I'll lose this way, and therefore God can't meet us. We live in a very transient place with relationship to church, with relationship to relationships. And it's very easy to think if we pour into certain people, then that means we can't pour into others, and that means we've lost. Uh, but I think in a transient place like this, we need to be pouring into people who may not serve in leadership in this church. Well, why do the training with them? Why take them through the, all these things? Because we're not dealing with an economy of scarcity, because God can keep giving more. Or I'll tell you a way it works out in my life. I, um, you know, we've been in this pastoral search for quite a long time. And, uh, and we've had some really good candidates that, for one reason or another, um, and usually it didn't have to do with our end, but they chose to stay home or they chose another church. And every time it felt like that church's gain was our loss. Or it happens when good people, great people come to Santa Barbara and they decide that another place is better for them to worship and serve in. And I think that church gained and we lost. But listen, when we start seeing other churches as competitors, you better believe that we're working with an economy of scarcity and not abundance. Their gain does not mean our loss. Their gain means our gain because all is yours. And you are Christ. The disciples, they complain about how little that they have. But our task is not to bemoan how few loaves and fishes we have. Our task is to offer whatever we have to Jesus and let him surprise us with the results. Do you not yet understand, Jesus asked? Do you not yet perceive my compassion and my abundance? The disciples, they latch on to something in Jesus's, uh, to question Jesus' compassion and abundance. Did you notice that? When he starts talking about compassion and for the crowd, they respond. Uh, in chapter 6, they respond by protesting that it's going to be too costly and that that cost will be either impossible or uh, uneconomical. Uh, here, they complain that the location is too remote, verse 4. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? <laughs> Have you ever had that happen to someone? Uh, um, 
you, you cast a beautiful vision. You say, look, for Thanksgiving, we are going to set up tables in the sunken gardens. We're going to set up tents. We're going to have a really nice meal, and we're going to have a Thanksgiving meal at 530 for all the people who can't have meals themselves. It's going to be beautiful. And someone says, 530 will never work. It's dark by then. You're like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Of course. Okay, we'll change it to five. You're missing the point. Right? Uh, This is the the problem that that usually happens in conversations between N's and S's on the (laughs) Myers-Briggs. Jesus clearly hears an N, and the disciples are asking, I'm kidding. Um, The disciples, though, they have a, a bigger, there's a bigger problem to their response and the fact that they're latching onto this detail and missing the greater vision. And the bigger problem to their response is that they've been here before. They have seen him provide before. Which brings us to the warning. The warning comes in verse 15. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, well, in verse, the verses just leading up to this, Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees where he gets into an argument with them because they come demanding a sign, verse 11. Now, you need to know this, that it's not that the Pharisees hadn't seen signs before. They had seen him do signs before. In fact, they were so sure that he did signs that before, earlier in Gospel of Mark, they accused him of doing signs by the work, uh, by the hand of the devil. So they didn't need to see him do more signs. They had seen signs. It's like, what else do you need? You've seen Lazarus' daughter raised. What else do you need? You've seen we stopped the woman whose hemorrhage was bleeding forever. What else do you need? You've seen, me, uh, you've seen me calm the storm. What else do you need? You've seen me cast out demons. What else do you need? You've seen me raise la- uh, the lame man. What else? What other sign could they need? But the Pharisees, you have to understand, their problem was not that they didn't have enough empirical evidence. Their problem was they didn't have the spiritual discernment to discern the evidence that was before them, which is so often the problem. We say we need more. Some of you are here and you are questioning whether Christianity is true or not. You think, I just need more information. But is that really the case? Is it really the case that you just need more information? The Pharisees did not need more information. Their problem was not an unconvinced mind, but an unconvicted heart. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven. Leaven is this uh, idea, it's used in Judaism to talk about something that was very, very small, but then could permeate a greater reality. And when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, what he's saying is this, look, the doubting that the Pharisees have where they see the sign, but they don't discern it, the spiritual blindness that the Pharisees has, he realizes that there's a seed of that within his disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Because in verse 16, his disciples are discussing the fact that they don't have any bread on the boat. And Jesus responds, verse 17, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? In other words, I just fed 5,000 people and then 4,000 people, and you're complaining that you don't have enough bread. 
Don't you get it? Don't you get it? But they don't get it. The leaven of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, watch out, because it can be in all of our lives. What does it look like? It looks like anxiety rather than prayer. Anxiety when the emergency alert goes off uh, on all of us in the middle of the night. It looks like the ways in which we feel so indispensable. Like if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. Like, like somehow God is going to be thwarted, the sovereign of the universe in his plan. It looks like the ways in which we feel that God is going to be thwarted if we do this or if this doesn't happen and we fail to recognize that he is the king of the universe who plans the end from the beginning. It looks like our unwillingness to receive grace and forgiveness because we fail to recognize that when he said it is finished, he meant it. It looks like the ways in which we are unwilling to let God's word say what human flourishing and what our flourishing looks like. As if we fail to recognize that he's the one who created the world And perhaps he knows best how it works. And he knows the difference between a disordered love and a love that's ordered for human flourishing. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out because it can spread. You see, the disciples suffered from something that I suffer from. It's called spiritual amnesia. They forget the gospel. When Neve was younger, uh, every morning we had this routine. We would get her up, we would change her diaper, we would fix her milk, and we would give her her milk. And every morning, once we fixed her diaper, as we were fixing her milk, she would cry out bloody murder for her milk. Like, you're not going to give me my milk, and I'm going to die. And we found ourselves sitting down with her and saying, Neve, mommy and daddy fixed your milk yesterday and the day before, and the day before that. And we are going to take care of you now. Don't you remember? But that's just it. She didn't remember. She doesn't remember. And we're a lot like that too. We don't remember. We're like colanders, sieves. The gospel comes into us and it pours right out and we have to keep on pouring it in over and over and over again because we forget. We forget the gospel. We forget the God of the gospel. Where do you forget the gospel? Perhaps it looks like failing to extend forgiveness because you forget how much you've received. Perhaps it looks like entitlement and the bitterness that ensues, forgiving, forgetting that every moment of your life and everything that you have is by the mercy of God. You exist by the mercy of God. Perhaps, uh, perhaps it looks like getting in the mor- up in the morning and praising the Lord for sustaining you through the night and getting to email and checking your work and feeling so anxious. We forget the gospel. And what we need to do is remember. That's why Jesus, he goes over the facts with them. 
Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were broken did you take up? They said to him, 12. It's good catechizing. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand that, that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need? It's very interesting what's going on in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And then verse 15 says, And and the word is ambiguous. It cautioned them. He cautioned them. The only loaf that they needed was the loaf that was there in the boat. It's the bread of life. It's him. He is the loaf. And when you have him, you have all that you need. Because he will satisfy you. Do you not yet understand? Jesus asked them. And yet there's even hope in that. Do you not yet understand? Because Jesus knows that they will understand. They will understand. The veil will be removed when they go to the cross. And they see him there. And then they will remember. And then their hearts will be melted.